0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today you get to hear firsthand from Richard Barnes. Richard recently completed a solo kayak crossing of the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand in a kayak that he designed and built. His is only the second solo of the Tasman Sea and the first unassisted effort. Before we get to our chat with Richard, Level 6 has been a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and they've stepped up once again with a special offer just for you as a Paddling the Blue podcast listener. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBpodcast at checkout for 10% off your order. I have a long sleeve and a short sleeve dry top from them as well as a pair of pants, and I love the fit and feel, and they look great. So check it out, level6.com, podcast at checkout for your 10% off. Also, if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, James and Simon keep on delivering great content. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBpodcast again at checkout, so PTBpodcast, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Richard Barnes. Hello, Richard. Welcome to Pedaling the Blue. Hello, John. Nice to be talking. Yes. So congratulations on your journey. It's, it's exciting to be sitting here to be able to say, yes, it's happened. <laughs> yes. You made it. Exciting to be out of the boat for a, for a little while, but probably excited to get back in the boat.
1: Definitely <laughs> looking forward to getting back in. Wow. There is always the what next. There will be a next.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So how did you get your
1: start as a paddler? Uh, So go back 40 years, roughly. And the first paddling I did was with scouts, scouts and then venturers. All right. And just loved it, fell in love with it, and then really took it up in a big way while I was at university. I'm not sure whether I did more studying or canoeing at (laughs) university.
0: (laughs) Well, it certainly led you to great things. Fun things. Yes. So where did the inspiration for your journey with Blue Moon come from? It it, it is a bit about finding the what
1: next. Okay. So I started doing longer distance paddling. We've got a race in Sydney, Hawkesbury Canoe Classic. That's 111 kilometers. Done that one many years. So that set a benchmark. I love doing that. Still do it. Murray Marathon's the longest race in Australia, 400 kilometers. So done that quite a few times too and loved it. Went over to America and did the Yukon, so 1,600 kilometers. Oh, all right. And absolutely loved that. So then it was, what next? Where, <laughs> where do you go for, for the next challenge? So it seemed like an exciting thing to try a bit of
0: ocean paddling. All right. And now when did you do the Yukon? It's about six or seven years ago now. Now, this particular trip, uh, so uh, th- let's tell our listeners the to and from. Can you give us the, uh, the, the layout of the route? All right. So I, I, Australia
1: on the west side of the Tasman Sea, New Zealand on the east side. Where I left from in Australia is Hobart in Tasmania, which is pretty much the southernmost part of Australia and it's also the closest bit of Australia to New Zealand. So leaving from the southernmost part of Australia, I was headed towards the southernmost part of New Zealand. Had maybe thought I'd aim for Milford Sound, one of their more famous tourist locations. Missed that and just about missed the bottom of New Zealand altogether, and ended up at the, the very southernmost tip of New Zealand.
0: Now yeah, that would have been a long paddle if you'd missed it. A very long paddle. <laughs> it looked like it might
1: end up in Antarctica at one stage, ah. and there was always South America beyond if I missed New Zealand altogether. Okay.
0: But right. food would have
1: run out before I got there.
0: So tell us about Blue Moon. Mm. It
1: started life as a, as or the hull started life as a standard double sea kayak hull, which I bought and then widened and lengthened, lengthened it to about 10 meters and widened it to 850 millimeters. So it's a fairly big hull. And then the deck, I I really molded it around my size so that I could sit up inside a cabin and be able to be comfortable inside the cabin. I had this idea that there should be a completely dry bedroom area sleeping area and then a, a vestibule between the dry sleeping area and the cockpit so I come in through a hatch into the vestibule get out of wet gear do any other semi wet stuff in that area let air into that part if it comes in with water as well and then go through another door inside the boat into my bedroom and so the bedroom I, I kept dry the whole way through oh, nice luxury yeah <laughs> really nice to be able to know that i'd be dry at night time now when you say bedroom describe that mm. so so bedroom is 2.1 meters long roughly so i can stretch right out it had all of my wheat vics on one side because they were big and bulky and needed somewhere to go so they took up a bit of space in there there was a bit of other food, the emergency sort of easy access food that I kept around my feet, all the electronics were in there with me as well as as the dry part and the batteries got the the driest corner just down in my feet. Apart yeah. from that, it was quite spacious and as part of it, I could sit up inside there too, so there was headroom to sit up.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not tiny like a like a little coffin. No, no, not at all. Oh, it's wonderful. luxury. Wonderful. It had a window out even. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is luxury. <laughs> it is. So and it
1: even, it even featured on uh, Airbnb. Someone grabbed a photo of it and put it on Airbnb <laughs> as a one-bedroom <laughs> tiny room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no takers yet. Ah, okay. So you self-designed the boat? I did, Okay, yes. And then you built yeah. it yourself as well? I did, too. Wow. Yeah. So
1: so started in the garage and the garage wasn't long enough, so we extended the garage. Ten meters of boat, took over from the car and anything else in the garage. Filled the garage with masses of fiberglass and smells. Shared it with all my family. Quite an e- uh, a journey to get from design to construction, but a lot of fun too. Yeah, now how long did it take you to, t- to design and then build? So the, the whole project's about nine years. There was a few years of not much action. There was a prototype along the way where I tried out cabin at the front of the boat and then decided the cabin at the back of the boat was better. Then
0: making the boat, the actual boat, took roughly a year. And did you have any prior experience in a boat of this type? Not of this type, no. Okay. I have
1: made many other fiberglass boats though. okay designed right. and made canoe polo boats uh, whitewater boats
0: okay yeah. but to make the leap so, to this kind of craft uh, mm. is is quite a change uh, how did you how did you learn about what features you'd like to put into the boat part of that is that I've, I'm a structural engineer and so the, the strength
1: side of it I sort of understand even though I don't know how strong waves are, but at least I had a good idea of where the, the weak points were and where to put more fiberglass. Mm-hmm. And then the the design, talking to lots of the other long-distance canoeists, that, that certainly helped. They have, have lots of good ideas. And then just working on my personal idea of the vestibule and bedroom, that was fairly specific to my design and... Just worked at that and sort of developed it along the way. Okay. And that's an advantage of doing the the construction
0: myself. I could tweak it as I went a bit. Sure. Now, did you have prototypes where you would test it and and then make make changes to it and on from there? So,
1: yes, there there was the prototype. The main prototype that I made was a cabin forward design, and I took that across Bass Strait as a, a trial. What I found was that it was pretty hard to steer and so that was why I switched to putting the cabin at the back okay. instead of at the front. That, that comes with a a real compromise though. To have the cabin at the back means that the cabin hatch faces forward and it means that the sea anchor has to be attached to the back of the boat which puts it near the rudder. and rudders and sea anchors don't like each other
0: uh it sounds like you're speaking from experience
1: yes yes indeed and it may be why quite a few of the other people that have built their own boats put the cabin at the front okay because then you can have the sea anchor at the front Uh so it's a lesson for anyone deciding on building a boat like this sea anchor where it's going to be relative to the rudder is a big decision
0: So for your trip you paddled the Tasman Sea so tell us what is it that makes the Tasman Sea or at least gives it the reputation that it's more treacherous than others?
1: So I'm not not really sure that it is more treacherous certainly people have a perception of that maybe that's because sailors sail across it and have hit some rough weather it's not that far south 40 degrees roughly but it does have the roaring 40s and Maybe it does have a connection with the Antarctic blowing up that, that does make it a bit rougher.
0: Did you experience much uh, much rough water on your trip?
1: No. Oh. no. I think I must have been just super lucky. That's nice. Th- there was a little bit of rough, but, but certainly nothing that would make you say, well, my life's at super risk here. Yeah.
0: Now, this was your second attempt. Tell us about the first.
1: Thinking back, we had a COVID epidemic. That was a real dilemma to everyone. Mm-hmm. And a year ago, when I went on my first trial, New Zealand had been shut to the whole world. I got sick of waiting. And so I decided I'd have a at least a trial paddle and maybe have to turn back halfway. At least I'd be out there trialling <laughs> my boat. So that's how I set out with this expectation that they'd turn me around if I did make it to New Zealand. I didn't make it that that far. I got to Lord Howe Island, so I'd set out heading up the coast as a bit of a a warm-up, and then headed north from Sydney, where I live, up towards the middle of Australia, then turned right and headed out towards Lord Howe Island. And when I got to Lord Howe Island, there was a cyclone just beyond it, so my land support, being very conservative, said best place to be is not near that. And so I'd turn around, and so I did, and ended up heading back to Australia again a little bit earlier than halfway. Okay, that that was the
0: the shakedown paddle. So that was 2001, or, or sorry, 2021. Yes, yes. so okay. a year a year before the real deal. Now Andrew McCauley, uh made a famous mm. attempt in 2008 that ended in his disappearance. So. How yes, did indeed. how did you feel knowing that others who'd attempted the route before you didn't make it?
1: It's, I've certainly thought about it a lot and even more on the trip. And when I got to where he got to within sight of New Zealand, I was just sitting there just wondering how on earth it could have happened. Yeah. How it could go wrong. I still don't understand that. Hmm. He, he disappeared on on a relatively calm day. It's just
0: one of those mysteries. Went all the way across and made it within sight. Yeah. And
1: I think he left a legacy. He was an adventurer. Go and do it. I think he was a positive influence, even though the outcome wasn't perfect. Now, was he in a conventional boat? Very close to conventional. Okay. So he, he, he took a double boat, and with the build of a it from two cockpits to one cockpit that was about all they did. Mm. His approach was so minimalist. Okay. So tough. When I look at my bedroom, which was just super luxury by comparison. Yeah. He he had to slide down into his cockpit into a wet bottom of the boat where he was jacketed into the boat.
0: So it sounds not unlike uh, Ed Gillette's journey uh, across the Pacific to Hawaii. Yes, very
1: like that. Both of them, just giants of perseverance and endurance so your route how did you choose the route so looking at the map it was the shortest
0: okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: 1700 kilometers going from south to south if i'd gone anywhere else where where the people that have made it the double and the solo stopping along the way it's about 2200 kilometers okay so so distance on my side and also down south the wind is tends to be more westerly and so it's going to blow me there all right that was a big bonus
0: all right now yeah. did you have a, a, a different landing point in mind originally so yes my, my weatherman had suggested go straight
1: east from hobart and when you get close to the new zealand coast make a decision either to Head towards Milford Sound, which was is a an isolated but very tourist-oriented access point, or head further up the coast to the more northwest part of the South Island of New Zealand, where there were more uh, potential landing spots. So, so the choices in South uh, or the western coast of New Zealand are, are fairly limited. Milford Sound's in the middle of fjordland. it's really the only Accessible point on the southwest coast of New Zealand. So if it wasn't Milford Sound, it was going to have to be well round to the southeast, or it was going to be well up the coast. Okay. And by the time I'd been blown south, I was heading for the southeast option.
0: So coming in right at the south end, I mean the very south south tip there. How great was the risk of missing it?
1: Well, as it turned out, I certainly got close to missing it. I was well, well south. So, some someone jokingly said I'd probably been the canoeist furthest south of New Zealand of any canoeist ever. Okay. Because no one'd go down that far south, just paddling out from New Zealand. Mm. Yeah.
0: Because there's nowhere to go.
1: <laughs> nowhere to go. No land down there. All right. But then my my weather forecaster had been saying there's there's southerlies coming and you will get blown back north. So I was really relying on that being right as he always was so i did get blown back up and all went well
0: all right so what was the best part of the trip for you no other than coming those two things can can i do two things (laughs) sure please do two best yeah so
1: one is one is uh, an encounter with nature Uh, i was paddling along and then there was this huge bang out to the right just on a flattish sea it turned out to be two fairly large fish, animals, and after they'd banged down into the water, they they just slowly swam around in front of the boat and then started putting on a display just for me. Really? So these two, they they look a bit like a dolphin with a sort of pointy nose, but they're much bigger, so something about the same size as my boat, about eight or nine metres long, maybe a few tonnes worth of them. Wow, and
0: they were just showing off to me.
1: So that, that was definitely pretty special.
0: Yeah. And uh, that, that's got to be surprising when you suddenly hear this, this loud noise, but it sounds like oh, you didn't yes. see it before you heard it. And... <laughs>
1: no. no.
0: It's just so exciting. I bet. So exciting. So
1: I grabbed my camera, and there's evidence. There's a photo of one of <laughs> these beautiful things leaping out of the water.
0: Ah. Now, how long do yeah. they entertain you?
1: Probably only five
0: minutes. Okay.
1: About five minutes was definitely a highlight. Oh, that sounds like it. Magical. I I, I found out later that they were beaked whales. Beaked whales. So the, yeah,
0: the the porpoise like, snout, gets them the the beaked tag. Okay. What was it that made them made them suddenly decide to give that display for you? Oh. Who knows? Is it just the, the, the
1: playful nature of these things? They saw something else about the same size and just wanted to interact. Maybe it's that wonder of why on earth did they choose me and show off to me that makes it so special.
0: Yeah, glad they did. I just don't know. And your second?
1: That, that's a more global sort of thing, just the, the incredible peacefulness out there. I sort of related it to everyday life when we make all these decisions we have to fit into society norms and have to be responsible and act responsibly and look after everything else and do all those things all day every day and we just don't normally get a chance to just relax, completely relax and that's what paddling out in the ocean is. This complete freedom from responsibility, peacefulness out on the water. I'm sure plenty of other canoeists know that—that that amazing peacefulness—and it's just magnified when it's
0: just me in the ocean. Yeah. Now, over yeah. your 67 days out there, did you come across many other boats? Uh, zero. Zero. Okay.
1: Absolutely zero. So no so ships, I left nothing. No ships, no sightings, no nothing. So I didn't see another human being from leaving Hobart until I was just on the, the coast at about day 64, so 64 days without another human in sight.
0: What is that like? Well, pretty
1: special, that's for sure. And in, in putting together this project and looking at risks, it was certainly one of the things I had on my risk list, what it would be like. Would it be scary to be alone like that? I think I know the answer now is is no, it's not. But I certainly didn't know that before I left. What goes through your head for 67 days? So a lot of nothing is part of the answer. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of time to think about not much at all, part of the specialness, the peacefulness. But if a friend had given me uh, laminated copies of some poetry, Aussie poetry by Banjo-Patterson, and being an engineer, literary things don't come to me too easily, but I I made it a task to try and memorize some of this beautiful poetry, and so I spent many, many hours trying to remember and then trying to belt out Banjo-Patterson poems.
0: Did you talk out loud to yourself?
1: I did, with that in particular. Okay. Yelling it out to the birds.
0: (laughs) So what was the hardest part of the trip? Hmm. I think the part
1: that created potential problems that might have stopped me getting to the finish. So on about day 35-ish, I was sleeping at night and a wave capsized the boat. So that started a string of things going wrong. So it started with a capsize, and then woke up, and my sea anchor had disappeared, and later in the day, part of my rudder broke. So all three, fairly significant things, all happening on one day, and while at the time they didn't stop the the progress, they they ate into my spares of everything and and my resolve and reserve, and so. All of that at once, it was a pretty tough day. So how did you overcome that? Uh, like an engineer, think through the problem, try and think up the solutions, come up with some alternatives. I did have a spare sea anchor. I had two spares, smaller ones, and so I strung them together and used the two of them to replace the, the one big one that had disappeared. So That was the solution to that. The rudder break it was, I'd, I'd had a restraint system on it so that when I parked at night time, the rudder didn't just clang and flap around on its own. Mm-hmm. It was the restraint system that broke. And so uh, I made a journey to the back of the boat and fiddling around as the boat bounced up and down, I managed to cobble together a, a replacement for that restraint system. Now you have to yeah. get out of the boat, tether yourself to the boat, all that stuff. Yeah, and it was a, it wasn't a calm day that day, so and it was fairly exciting getting that sorted out, and, and trying to hold. I, I needed some bolts and things, and trying to put nuts onto bolts while bouncing up and down in the water, waves washing over. Certainly aware of the the, the risk of just dropping everything to the bottom of the ocean.
0: Yeah, fortunately, it all came together. Was there any time when you thought of giving up? So
1: that was about as close as it got when all those things started to go wrong.
0: Okay. Beyond that.
1: I knew from the first trial that it was going to be hard to live with not getting to New Zealand. So it was a a big imperative to get there. And
0: that's partly letting down all the people that are involved. How close were you to pulling the plug?
1: A long way from it. Okay. long, long way.
0: You mentioned the people who were involved in making it happen tell us about the people mm. involved it's it's amazing
1: how many people were involved i've got a very good friend phil and he was probably the most instrumental he he helped with a lot of the fiberglassing of the boat there were some big days of fiberglassing he helped convert my desalinator from a hand operated device to a foot operated device he helped with the design and thinking through the way things had come together and the vestibule and the cabinet work So he was he was key. Uh, my sister, she's while well, she didn't want me to go, she was certainly amazingly supportive in every way. Once once I she knew that I wanted to go, she was right there, helping, organising, sorting all sorts of things. And then lots of other people, keen to provide things, uh, marmalade and muesli and all sorts of sweet treats to take along the way. I was away for Christmas and my birthday, so people provided birthday and Christmas cards, really nice things like that. All right. I had my family get me down to Hobart to start the trip with the boat, family and friends that met me over in New Zealand. Work's been incredible, letting me get away for three months, twice over, lots of people. And you mentioned your weather forecaster as well. So so I had this amazing person, Roger. He's the guru of weather forecasting. And essentially all he did was send me an email, one email every night saying what the wind speed would be, what the wind direction would be, what the swell would be, what the waves would be. Such simple information, but so accurately provided every night for the whole 67 days. Just one of those treasures given to me freely generosity of an amazing skilled person
0: so how did you communicate with the outside world
1: you probably know that i'm not technologically advanced and so this was all set up by my nephew he he understands these things we we got a satellite receiver and that broadcasts some sort of wireless information through the canoe so I could use an iPhone and an iPad to pick up whatever I need to pick up. I don't actually use a mobile phone at all, so okay. I'm totally illiterate in those sort of things. But it worked. And so I had the, the choice to to use texts or voice or emails. And I chose just to email. And so each night I'd send out a little story. The person that was receiving that was setting it up on a website that the world could see, then sending back bits of what was happening on Facebook to so, so I could enjoy
0: that. So that was the main contact. So all those updates that were coming out were truly from you as opposed to coming through someone else. Truly from me, that's right, each night. It was great to be able to, to watch the updates. and I enjoyed
1: sitting up and eating dinner
0: while I tic-tapped away, <laughs>
1: thought about, who was going to be out there enjoying it.
0: Now, you mentioned you celebrated your 62nd birthday at sea. What was that like? Pretty special, for sure. Um,
1: Definitely feeling older, too. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) There has to be treats for things like that, and I like hot dogs, so I'd taken a can of Frankfurt's, and so that was my treat for my birthday. Plus, I had these two birthday cards that people had given me, and so I opened them
0: that was my little celebration now spe- yeah. speaking of celebrations tell us what's up with the coke <laughs> i do like coke
1: it's very enjoyable <laughs> and what a can of coke was the plan on the first trip <laughs> that that didn't quite work out because two things cans of coke corrode faster than i could drink them so that was a problem okay and also one of the hatches that had most of my coke in it on the first trial was ripped off by the sea anchor and there went all of my coke although that that story was transformed by the person that draws the little cartoons for me that the albatross had actually stolen the coke
0: okay but
1: behind all of that there is a need to make sure there's enough liquid on board There was always the chance that the desalinator wouldn't work or would break down somewhere or other. So having something like 30 litres of coke on board was was a bit of a backup. I went on this trip with plastic bottles and each time I drank a bottle of coke, I'd replace it with desalinated water. So I kept 30 litres of liquid plus other as part of my desalination backup and that would have kept going for quite a while.
0: So you would desalinate and then fill the empty Coke bottle with, with desalinated water?
1: That's it, Okay. Yeah. Actually arrived in New Zealand and we tipped all that water out. I now realize I should have kept it as souvenirs.
0: So how many bottles of Coke did you store on board? So I'd taken food for 100
1: days, so there was 100 by 300 milliliter bottles of Coke on board, one a night.
0: And then in terms of food while you were out there, what was your food of choice?
1: Wheat Bix is is definitely one of my go-tos.
0: Do you get Wheat Bix in America? We don't. I was just going to ask, what is a Wheat Bix? So it's a, a biscuit-sized squished lump of wheat. Okay.
1: And you, you can eat it either straight away when you put milk on it and it, it's crunchy, or you can leave it and it goes soggy and soft and beautifully mushy.
0: All right, we and do so, have uh, frosted. Well, we have frosted mini wheats, and then there uh-huh. are uh, just wheat bits. I think there there's something similar. So we do have something that like here. That. It's very bland, incredibly bland, and <laughs> so it just goes down
1: really easily. So, do you prefer yes. crunchy or soft? So, so I indulged in both. I had four wheat bits, crunchy, straight away at breakfast time, and then I put another four aside in a cup. And that cup would last me from breakfast time, sometimes till three or four in the afternoon. i just take a nibble every now and then and enjoy it all through the day.
0: So your caloric intake, I mean, you had to be using an awful lot of calories. Uh, how did you refuel? Mm. Couldn't have just been wheat Picks. Well, they're a Pretty good starting point. <laughs> I think I was running on
1: about four and a half thousand calories a day. And so one of the main things contributing. So that was a dehydrated meal each evening, backed up by things like couscous and pasta, cake for dessert and some sardines and tins of fish for lunch with wheat biscuits. That was kind of the staple that I was running on and it seemed to work. You didn't lose weight at all? No. I had in trials, I usually get seasick at the start and that usually knocks a bit of weight off, but I was
0: out long enough this time. So I just stayed pretty normal weight. Interesting. All right. Did you cook mm. at all or is that, was it all uncooked? So
1: I'd taken a jet boil. So I had the ability to boil water. That that was the only cooking. So dehydrated meals could rehydrate them and cup of soups and custard, things like that, all, all of them that I could do with, so, which was really nice. It was cold. And so it was really nice to be able to have that
0: food aside from coke what did you crave most <laughs> by the time we got to the end
1: I, i'd put out hints that i really like a strawberry milkshake ah and hot chips <laughs> that were the two things that i was kind of hanging out for fresh fruit as well That, huh. that was going to be really nice and fresh bread they're staples that i
0: was missing what did you eat first when you hit land
1: Well, even with all the hints that I put out, strawberry (laughs) milkshake and hot chips and things like that. And I'd seen Cyril arrive in Hawaii and he was surrounded by all those delightful things. I got to the finish and a person had a small bag of choc chip cookies and I hate chocolate. (laughs) And so it was a little bit of a wait before I got to anything. But lunch came along with family and we had ham and tomato sandwiches so the combination of tomato meat fresh bread was
0: pretty special how long was it before you got that strawberry milkshake and the hot chips (laughs) so the strawberry milkshake was the next day
1: and the hot chips i got back to sydney before i
0: actually got hot chips wow yeah so it was a long (laughs) way So, what was a normal day at sea like for you got up
1: roughly when it was starting to be sunlight i was a bit of a sleep in person so late start get up have breakfast change into all the wet stuff pull in the sea anchor do all the other fiddly little bits and pieces get out into the cockpit having got into wet clothes paddle for about 8 to 10 hours, usually until about 7 at night. Do the reverse, put out the sea anchor, jump back into the cabin, so usually about 8 o'clock into the cabin. 8 till about midnight, eating dinner, writing stories, writing my own little log. Midnight till sunrise, sleep. That was the day.
0: Over and over again, 67 times. Indeed. New (laughs) and exciting every day. (laughs) How did you prepare for the trip? So uh, uh, 40 years of canoeing, is that preparation? All right. Yeah. <laughs> but is there anything different uh, mentally or physically during that initial lead-up point? Yeah. I, I know other people have said I
1: should have been out canoeing more, training stamina, working up and things, but I paddled for fun, so I just kept doing the fun paddling. There wasn't any specific muscle building or anything like that. My sister did try and feed me up so I'd have reserves of fat, but that didn't really work. I did eat lots, but I just didn't put on the weight. Anything so, anything mental to get yourself ready for that? I certainly thought about it and did talk a little bit to a few people but in that sort of area. Uh, just... I am a fairly positive person anyway, and so just really thinking in positive ways and trying to reinforce that, I guess, was the main thing.
0: If you had to do it again, what would you do different?
1: I, I did think a lot about that, even though I promised myself and all my supporters that I won't. Definitely stronger rudder and more separation to the sea anchor would be key things to make the boat more resilient. I, I learnt with diet that... What I liked is what I should take. So potions and lotions and things were not for me I eat to enjoy. So I'd definitely do that again. The boat, I would probably make it a, a bit wider and a bit shorter. It would probably be a little bit faster that way. So that, that would be a bit better. I'd stick with the, the vestibule and cabin arrangement. That worked really, really well. It's just really nice.
0: Would you do it again? No.
1: So not that I wouldn't like to, loved it. And as soon as I'd stepped on shore, I would like to have been out there again. But the trauma it causes to family and the disruption it causes to work and colleagues, that's it, pretty selfish outlook on life. And so not fair to do it again. That's part of it. Also, there's just plenty of other exciting canoeing to be done. And so stick more coastal, stick more with other people where I'll spend future paddling time.
0: So you don't see yourself doing another long open, uh, open ocean journey. No. Okay. No. So what is next for you? Short term, I'm off to Mexico
1: in November. So six months away, we're, we're heading to Mexico and to Costa Rica for some white water. Nice. Uh, I've been part of a, a group from Sydney Uni that, that travel the world, whitewater canoeing and so. We're off to more adventure. Longer term, maybe, just maybe, there's a hint of wanting to paddle around Australia, enjoy that coastal
0: 12,000-kilometer trip. So you've always got the coast right, uh, coast nearby.
1: Indeed, yes. Lovely. I live on the coast and love it. All I right. can look out at the ocean and see the ocean calling.
0: Where can people learn more about you and your trip? So there's a, a Facebook site,
1: Blue Moon, named after my canoe. That's one place. There's also the canoe club that I paddle with each week, Lane Cove River Kayakers. They've got a website and the information's all on there. Ian Renford was the person that received all the stories I was writing and then put them up on the website. and on Facebook and did just an amazing job sharing the story as I went along the way. And so that's all all there, that website, Lane Cove River Kayakers and Facebook Blue Moon.
0: Now, Lane Cove River Kayakers, uh, would you consider yourself more of a river kayaker or more of an ocean kayaker?
1: I'd like to think of myself as an all sorts. Not brilliant at
0: any of them, but loving them all. Well, you've certainly uh, proven yourself on the ocean, no question. (laughs) perseverance maybe
1: (laughs) but I'd encourage everyone to be out there because it is just so beautiful so peaceful
0: well we will definitely get links to the Facebook site and to Lane Cove River Kayakers out in our show notes so folks can follow along with that and and see more about the journey Yeah. so one final question for you and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? So there's a lady that's been out on the
1: ocean, same time as me, but way longer. She headed out from America back in August, and she's headed for Australia in a rowing boat. Her name's Michelle Lee. I think she'd be a a great candidate. She's, at this moment, about seven and a half thousand kilometres into the journey, only about, sorry, seven and a half thousand miles. About 500 miles to go, so almost here in Australia. Yeah. It's very exciting. She's got a great story to tell.
0: I've been following her story as well, so uh, you're right, she's, oh, she's getting close. So close. So exciting for her. Well, Richard, thank you very much. It's been wonderful uh, having the opportunity to hear from you and, and to hear about your journey with Blue Moon from Australia to New Zealand. I appreciate you joining me.
1: Uh, I hope it encourages other people to get out there and follow their dreams and adventures well you've
0: certainly done that thank you good on you if you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler power to the paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. That's a long time to be mostly powered by Wheat Bix and Coke. While Richard certainly had some onboard luxuries in having multiple cabins, I found the simplicity of some of the parts of his routine pretty interesting. Things like swapping desalinated water with Coke to make sure he had a supply in case that desalinator stopped working. It was pretty interesting. We have shredded wheat and frosted mini-wheats here in the U.S., and I had to look up wheat It looks a little like particle board to me, so I'm not sure if that's going to be really high on my staple, but glad he enjoyed it and glad it kept him powered. I will add a link in the show notes to Lane Cove River Kayakers, where they've got some great resources to learn more about Richard's trip, and a nice graphic showing the inside of his kayak and its compartments. A big congratulations to Richards once again. Thank you for your perseverance and for sharing your story of your trip with us. Thanks again to our partners, Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking, for extending special offers to you as a listener. And if you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com. Use the coupon code PTBpodcast at checkout to get 10% off your order. And visit online to take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. So as well, enter the code PTB podcast to check out, get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. In our next episode, we will talk with Alistair Wilson. Alistair has a storied history in paddle sports that includes two trips to the Olympics and the founding of Lendl Paddles. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.